Welcome to Women Wanting Women, where we explore topics that matter to women like us. We talk about being a woman, attracting women, and becoming more powerful women by developing more self-confidence and always reaching for the next level in our self-actualization. I'm your hostess, lesbian love coach Jordana Michelle. And if you're interested in finally finding the woman of your dreams, so you can be best friends who learn and grow together, share dreams together, have adventures together, and share passionate intimacy together, then also check out my website, womenwantingwomen.com, because it's packed with free resources that can help you. For example, there are free quizzes you can take, including one that will tell you what might be standing in your way of finding love and another that will tell you what qualities the woman of your dreams will find most attractive about you when you meet her. There are free video tutorials you can watch that explain why women do the things they do and how you can navigate the frustrating world of lesbian dating with confidence, even if you're feeling lonely and desperate. There are free guides you can download to learn the secrets of how to avoid rejection, heal from heartbreak, and find epic lesbian love, And there's a free matchmaking survey you can fill out in case I already know the woman of your dreams. All of that is available now on womenwantingwomen.com. And if you want lesbian dating advice from me more often, follow me on Instagram at jordana.michelle. But before we go any further, I have a question. Have you ever wanted to be better at engaging with new people when you meet them for the first time? What if you could talk about yourself in a way that lights people up and makes them care about what you're saying? Well, in this episode of Women Wanting Women, I talk about all this and more with queer comedian and keynote speaker Jen Letterer. You can learn more about Jen at jenletterer.com, but before you do, please stick around for all the wisdom and great advice she shares with us here. Jen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, Jordana. I'm so excited to have this conversation. So let's start it by just having you tell the audience who you are and also how you found your way into the LGBT community. Sure. I am Jen Letterer. I am a comedian and keynote speaker. In my work, I help entrepreneurs and small business owners learn how to storytell their career using a comedian's formula. So Another way of saying that is just teaching people how to be human in their communication and standing in their own value and really learning how to take up space and get to the points that create connectivity. You know, as a comedian, my focus is finding the funny, but as a business owner, the focus is finding the connection. Um, Something that I think you do really well here with this show, you know, being able to speak to the people that want to hear what you have to say and and do it really consistently and really well, which I think you do. That's so kind of you to say. Yeah. I love that. Teaching people to take up space, how to get to the point and find the connection and allow creativity there. I want to hear all about that. It's so, it's such important work. But I really also want to hear how you how you found your way into the LGBT community. Yeah, totally. Let's get to the good stuff. I, um, I mean, in a lot of ways, my work is very connected to that. I started to do comedy in 2018, and you know, I've I've been with women my whole, uh, let's say, sexual life, like since I was maybe 17. 
I had experiences with women, but I used to always say I can come with them. I can't go with them. (laughs) (laughs) So I was very much in the pool of like, I don't, I don't date women. I'm just, I'm just a straight woman who sometimes sleeps with women. And I really, really believed that about myself. And when I started writing jokes, as I was saying, it's about getting to the truth. The only thing that's ever funny is the truth, in my opinion. And the writing kept going back to my experiences with women and exploring that part of myself and going back to those stories. And eventually I was like, why do I keep being drawn to this part of myself? Maybe there's something more here. And at the time, I was dating a guy. We had been together uh, for maybe two and a half years at that point. And it it was another maybe two years of us being together when I finally came to him. And I was like, listen, what do you think about an open relationship? There's some parts of myself that I really want to explore more intentionally. And he was down. Uh, with that. And we did an open relationship for about two years. So we were together for about seven and a half years all in. And through that, I just realized, and this is one of the jokes that I recently wrote, that what I've been looking for in a boyfriend is a girlfriend. (laughs) That's good. And it, you know, it takes as long as it takes for us to figure ourselves out. So I'm definitely in the late in life lesbian, you know, group of things. Sweetheart, if I had been making out with girls when I was 17 years old, I wouldn't be considering myself late in life. I know, but I wasn't, but I wasn't identifying with that at all. Like it was just something that I do, like how sometimes you drink a Coke, you know, it was like, this is just something that I do. It was not an identifying part of myself. Right. I guess that's what's so funny because for me, the implications of me even trying to kiss a girl at 17, which I didn't do, by the way, I didn't kiss a girl until I was 23. But I think the fear would have been that I wasn't allowed to. And what would that have meant about me? And it would have been that I was mm. creepy in some way. I would have been afraid to do it. So I think in some ways, the I wonder if the fact that you didn't identify with it made it so much easier to go there maybe without fear. So one of the women that has been like a huge influence in my life, her name's Mara Rago. She is a photographer. She's also lesbian. And she started shooting me when I was 14. And My mom was very supportive of me working with her and very supportive of Mare in general. And when Mare lived in a artist loft in Pittsburgh, which is where I'm from, and she would have these parties and I would go to these parties and be just engulfed in her queer community. And so that was my introduction into the queer community, just love and support and women and men. And, you know, at the time there wasn't the conversation of non-binary and things like that, but definitely trans people, like all of the conversation was in the room every time I went and hung out with Mare. So like the queer community was always very normalized for me in my family and in the ways that I spent my time. And then once I got into college, I was kind of always hanging out with Mare. And I remember sitting with her so many times and looking at her and saying, am I gay? Like, can you just tell me, just tell me, am I gay? And she said, Jen, I cannot answer that for you. But what I can say is if you're asking, keep asking. That's a good answer. Uh, And it's also a very cool story about at age 14 being brought into this 
sounds like a den of yes totally a den (laughs) yeah no it sounds great had I seen that at 14 I wouldn't have felt as weird about these things back then either so what a privilege there were some interesting parties that I walked into sometimes with my parents I remember one party I walked into and there was like a BDSM X, you know, on the wall and someone was attached to the X and I look over to my left and I see that and I look over to my right and I look at my dad and he goes, all right, well, I'm not sure I'm going to stay at this one long. (laughs) But there was never any shame around sexuality or anything like that in, in my immediate family. How much older was Mara? Yeah, I call her Mara. Her name's Mara, so you could go either way with it. She is Mara. I would. Oh God, I don't know if she's going to. How much older was she than you at the time? Like twenty-five years, maybe twenty years. Yeah. All right. Well, what an exciting introduction to the world for you. She sounds like a cool mentor to have. Oh, she's the best. I just had a photo shoot with her a couple weeks ago. I see her every time I'm back in Pittsburgh. Uh, She's one of my very good friends. That's very lucky. Mentorship is so important to who we become in this world. Yeah, and representation. You know, like I just was sharing, I had the representation of queer people being happy, living normal lives, having parties and having fun, not being harassed. There was no fear being seeded into my initial experience of the queer life at all. Yeah, that's beautiful. So let's work our way back to storytelling. How do you work with companies to help them tell better stories? Yeah. When I'm brought into corporations, I'm either presenting a group workshop. It can be at a conference to hundreds of people or a conference room to like 15 to 25 people. And I walk them through this formula that I created to help people just have a sense of anchoring themselves into talking points of things that you want to hit when you're asked, hey, what do you do? Uh, No one really cares like the tasks that you do every day or any of the mundane jargon that we think might be impressive, the certifications that we've earned, the, you know, education that we have. All of that is great for a resume or for a bio that's going to be written somewhere. But when you're talking to somebody, they really want to know why you do what you do, how you do what you do what's next in what you do. These are the things that you can light up when you talk about them. And when we light up, now people are bought in, right? Now people are like, I don't even really care what you're talking about. You seem really excited and interested in this. So now I'm interested in it. I compare it to when people ask you to share like, what's your favorite movie or city you've been to or meal? When you answer that question, you're not concerned about being impressive or convincing the person to agree that that is the best film, city, or meal. You're just lit up sharing your happiness about it. And I'm trying to get people into that space when they talk about their work. And this is effective when you're interviewing for promotions, for new jobs, when you're on a podcast, when you're on a panel, when you're just at a party and want to be the person who's not boring, the formula can kind of be used anywhere. Your social media presence, all of that. It's just about learning how to be human, slowing down when you talk. Uh, when I work with C-suite executives, it's it's more about like that 
performance quality, the energy behind what you're saying when you're up at the podium and speaking to your entire company or out public facing, talking about maybe one of the hot topics that are out that's happening in the world and your company has to share a statement on it. What is your energy when you are standing up there and speaking on behalf of your company? So that's where I have a, a lot of performance background. So it's not just here's how to write what you should say, but also how to say it in a way that's going to connect. Because again, no one's really going to remember the words that you say. They're going to remember how you made them feel. Maya Angelou. That's it. Yeah. So what are some questions people can ask themselves as they're trying to be more interesting? If, if, you know, anyone listening just wants to be more interesting on a date or they want to be more interesting on the dating apps, or they want to be yeah able to tell their story better. What are some questions they could be asking themselves to bring out? Yeah. I, I love that you framed it that way because I tell people just don't try to be interesting, be interested. So whether that is being interested in the topic that you're about to talk about, whether that's yourself or your work or your hobbies, are you actually interested in what you're saying or be interested in the other person? Because again, when you're interested, you light up. When you try to be interesting, you're usually a little bit dissociated. You're out of your body. You're jumping into the other person, trying to read their mind, trying to figure out like in a really hypervigilant way, what do they want from me? What's going to impress them? What's going to make them stay in this conversation? And what's going to make them stay the most is if you're having fun in the conversation. And that's true when a comedian's on stage. You can have the best jokes written like perfectly formulaic, no fat on the joke, meaning like there's no no wasted words. Everything is perfect. But if you're not having fun on that stage, it's not you're not the best comedian in the lineup. Yeah. So what are some ways people can have more fun? On a date? Because a lot of the time, anywhere, right? Because we get anxious. Yeah. We get nervous. We want to want to come off the right way. You want to come off the right way. Okay. So again, it's like, don't. I know. I totally hear you. It's about not focusing on what they think of you. Yeah. 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 Like, so, okay, here's what I would say. If you find yourself being really nervous, like all the time in these scenarios where you're meeting new people, whether it's professionally or personally, how often are you practicing talking about yourself? Get on a FaceTime with a friend and be like, listen, I just want to bullshit for like 15 minutes. Ask me questions about myself. Because with your friend, it's it's low stakes, right? You're not going to be nervous. You're not going to worry about if you're saying um or like or pausing. And that's the other thing. Don't be afraid of silence. Don't be afraid to let the uh, the conversation get quiet for a moment. Sometimes that's where the connection can really happen. And... If you notice that the other person is nervous or you're just sitting there and you're like, God, I'm nervous, say it. Say, I'm nervous. Where are you right now? Because I am like feeling my heart in my in my neck <laughs> or in my feet or wherever it is. That's one of the uh, the first things in my formula is meet them where they are. And if you can be the first one to speak what's present and be honest about it, um, now you're earning their trust. Now you're the one saying, okay, I'll go first with the vulnerability. I'll go first with the being the person who's like, I 
have no idea what I'm doing, which by the way, nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> nobody <laughs> has it figured out. So I have found that when I am in any situation, if I'm willing to be the first one to say what's present, even if it's like, wow, I'm really excited. It's not even like nerves. I'm just like buzzing because I'm so excited to be here. If I say that, suddenly the buzzing actually chills out a little bit as soon as I say it. And then the other person gets permission to also be honest and that's a beautiful place to start because now I'm clearly not trying to impress you. I'm really just here wanting to connect. And in terms of just making yourself have more fun, does that work for that? If you're trying to have fun in the moment, just because I guess it diffuses the energy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, the, tr the truth is funny. The truth is fun. The truth is where you can, you can go anywhere. You can go anywhere from the truth. When you're not trying to have a facade or manipulate the conversation or what's going to happen next, you know, the sky's the limit when you're willing to be honest. Yeah, absolutely. And then when you talked about the energy behind it, are there any other strategies for shifting your energy that, that work in interactions? Yeah. I mean, you and I did it right before we started this call. You know, you just took a moment to share your intention for this show and take a moment to take a breath and get into your body. Do you know about like cleansing your aura at all? Like when you um, just do a, uh, so I know this is an audio po podcast, but if you brush your hands, like starting from the top of your head down, the back of your head, your face, all the way down your body and brush off the energy. I do that a lot because I'm moving around New York City. And when you're moving around, you're picking up other people's energy and you don't necessarily notice that it's happening. And I can have a really stressful subway ride between my apartment and wherever I'm going. And so if I take a moment to just cleanse my aura and I don't really know, is your audience going to be into this sort of thing, me speaking this way? I think anything you want to share that works for you is such is valuable for everyone to hear. Okay. So, you know, and, and think of it this way, just shake it off, right? Just shake off whatever just got picked up, whether you're cognizant of it or not. It's just having a moment of like, all right, whatever's not mine, let me put it down and then get present to, okay, now that I've done that, what is present with me? Am I nervous? Am I excited? Am I tired? Am I, you know, whatever is here, just taking a moment to take ownership of what you're about to bring into this connection can give you a lot of power and a lot of awareness so that you don't feel like you're being taken for a ride by your emotions or by the moment. Yeah, I think it's important for us to realize that a lot of times what we're feeling isn't even necessarily ours. We could be totally. getting, I don't know what it is, like we absorb by osmosis the energy of the people around us. And so if we're feeling anxious, if we don't pause, we might just think that we're anxious when actually it just could be that someone we were in the elevator with a minute ago was anxious yep. and we're still holding on to it. Yep. So that makes a lot of sense wanting to to clear away that which we picked up, that which isn't ours and that which doesn't serve us. And if you go into the conversation knowing, okay, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm feeling. Once you connect with the person, if you start feeling the nerves, the anxiety, the whatever, it's a good chance that it's them that you're feeling because you know that, I, okay, I wasn't just feeling this. So maybe I check in with them, right? Maybe I just see, hey, how are you feeling? Because 
it feels like maybe you're a little nervous or is that just me? Right. And, and, and you can always just bring it back to yourself, be willing to be the scapegoat in that moment and, and take, you know, the blame or whatever for the nerves. But I don't know. I've just always found if you're willing to be the one to say it, you have, you have the power in the conversation. That's interesting. I've never actually said it. I found myself with someone where I felt that they were bringing a lot to the you know, energetically to the interaction and I'll just take a deep breath or try and clear it wherever I'm feeling in my body. I breathe it deeply into that place and just hope that mm -hmm. it clears, but you're right. Mm -hmm. Maybe if they're bringing that, then just addressing it can go a long way. Very, very smart. Yeah. So are there any other parts of the formula that you'd be comfortable sharing? Yeah, absolutely. So the first piece is what we just said, meet them where they are. And when we're talking about your profession, like I did at the beginning, I said, I'm a comedian and I'm a keynote speaker because everybody knows what those two things are. And oftentimes we're told differentiate yourself, right? Differentiate, differentiate yourself right from the beginning. And if you are too different and you're using a title that like nobody knows what that is because you made it up because we can do that now in 2023 or 2024, whenever this is coming out. If you do that and you lose them, then you've created a disconnection right from the beginning. And as we've just been saying, when somebody feels nervous or feels like, oh man, I'm lost already, they're not going to say anything. They're just going to sit there and nod and pretend that they know what you're talking about. And now the conversation is built on disconnection from the jump. So just be simple with it. Give them a title that they can understand. Then you start to differentiate yourself, sharing about why do you do what you do? How do you do what you do? What's next in what you do? The what's next is very exciting. This is where people can get very excited about you, your work, your vision. This is where you can be vulnerable saying, I have no idea, by the way, how I'm about to pull this off. I don't know the right contacts. I don't know what the next step is, but here's what I'm thinking. And what I have found is oftentimes you might be talking to somebody who has a connection for you or has an idea. And now they're really excited because people like to be helpful. Yeah. And it, and it invites their help for sure. Exactly. And now, and now they're a part of the conversation. They're a part of your vision. And that's when you talked about the light up and the buy-in yep. when you have them itching to go give you their assistance, especially your, you, it starts from this, you know, you're saying it's sort of a vulnerability, but it's a great technique actually to invite help. Yep. You're saying, I don't really know this is the goal, but you know, help me get there. And next thing you know, people are volunteering. That's genius. Yeah. Thank you. And then the, the last part of it that the people have a hard time with is ending their like, let's say pitch or talking about yourself. You'll either trail off or oftentimes, especially women, we apologize for everything we just said, right? We're like, I don't know if that even made sense. I, so anyway, what do you do? And we just like, <laughs> we just like throw the hot potato back at the other person. And this is where you want to take up more space and practice staying with the focus on you and your work. And so what I recommend is that you ask a question that checks the temperature. Did we just connect? Did you pick up what I'm putting down? Did you hear what I'm saying? So an example of that is, you know, with the work that I do, if I asked somebody, so on a scale of one to 10, how much do you hate talking about yourself? It's a really easy they can give, you know, one being you absolutely hate it, don't make me do it. Ten, I can talk about myself all day. No matter where, what number you give me, 
I can then build on the conversation from there. If you give me a one, cool. Why? Why do you think you hate it? If you give me a 10, oh, now you're about to talk about yourself. <laughs> Let me hear you do it. So just having a question that kind of allows you to see, did you, did you hear me? Are we connecting? Because that's the point. That's the whole point of this conversation. Not did I impress you? Not is there a follow-up? Not is there a sale? Did we connect? But if you ask it specifically, did we connect? You're you're actually doing the, it's almost like the apology and throwing back the hot potato because they could just say, yeah, and move on. But when you're saying on a scale of one to 10, what is your feeling about X, Y, Z related to what I just said? It then, as you say, furthers the conversation, but staying on your topic. Yeah. And and you want to talk like a human. Nobody says, did we connect? Nobody talks like that, right? Like that that's a weird turn of phrase to just throw at somebody. So you're, you guys listening know the formula. And so you know why I would be asking that. But the person that you're talking to doesn't actually know the formula. So you're the one like navigating and guiding this conversation in what feels like a really natural and like out of the blue way that this person just is really good at talking to people, but actually you have a little formula that you're going off of. And, you know, that's why it's helpful. It's there's actually an art form to being a human. I've found. I love it. I also love this, this thing you keep coming back to the idea of staying, of taking up space and also of slowing down our talking yeah. uh, and and how women sometimes have a have problem. I think all there, you know, and you can be any gender and have a problem with this, but I do think it's, I think it's an important topic to just sort of dive in on, to, to double click on a little bit. Can mm. you tell more about why slowing down is, helps with, with us sounding more confident and how taking up space is so important? Mm-hmm. And this can be in dating and professional, and this is applied everywhere. Uh, when we talk quickly, there is the innate energy of the apology, right? Let me hurry up and get this out because I know you're sick of hearing me talk. I'm sick of hearing me talk. So let me get this out as, as soon as I can so that I can be quiet. And I, again, I, you know, I hesitate to gender so much of this, but women are taught to be quiet and not have as loud of an opinion and not follow up on things and not point out when, hey, I actually just said that two seconds ago. Why are you repeating me in a different way, thinking that it's an it's a unique idea? Um, you know, in meetings, let's say that happens. But in life, in conversations, slowing down, it gives you the space to stay present with yourself because sure, we checked in on our energy before we started the conversation, but now where is your energy? What's happening? As you're talking about whatever thing they just asked you about, ooh, that actually made me a little anxious or made me a little excited or made me a little angry or, you know, what, what is present now? If you slow down, there's more of a chance that you can be aware of that. Not saying you always have to speak it, but it's your own internal information that's happening in this conversation at all times. And then when I talk slower, I've found that usually when the person I'm talking to takes their turn, they will also talk slower. It's just this like embodied invitation of I'm in no hurry. You have my full attention. 
what do you want to say? I love all of that. That idea of speeding up because of the fear that they're sick of hearing me talk and you're just trying to hurry up and get it out. I think I'd also add to that in my case, sometimes the fear that I'm going to forget what I was going to say. Yeah, totally. That too. And I do think that that ends up making us not only seem less confident, but really feel less confident because the quicker we go, the more anxious it even makes us. And I have forgotten what I was going to say many times on stage. And I either get quiet and trust that it's coming back. And nine times out of 10, it comes back. If you can just sit with the silence for like three seconds, it's going to feel like 30 minutes, (laughs) but it's like three seconds. Or just say it. I was going to say something. I completely forgot what I was going to say, but I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you if it comes back into my mind. But anyway, go ahead, you know, and just get used to saying it because it's another practice of not apologizing for being human. We forget what we were about to say all the damn time. I love it. Was there more to the formula for connecting with people? No, that's it. Meet them where they are. How do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? What's next in what you do? And then check the temperature. Did we connect? And the the thing here is having an arsenal of stories, right? As a comedian, I have so many different stories that I am constantly building and keeping a list of in my phone. Because depending on the room that I'm in, there's going to be different stories that connect with different people. And that's my job as a comedian to be able to serve different rooms. And it's the same thing when you're talking to somebody in an airport versus on a podcast versus in an interview versus on a panel, it's going to be a different vibe of the conversation. So to have different stories in your story bank that answer all of those questions and you can build them in different ways, like a, you know, create your own adventure type thing. That's where my coaching really uh, comes in with helping people pull out the stories that are going to position you as an expert, position you as somebody who's really confident in what you do, um, and then also positions you as the person that is easily connected, right? That people feel like they want to spend more time with you. They feel like they want to trust you with their business or trust you with whatever it is you're here to talk about, Um Storytelling is how we connect, period. It's how we learn our history. It's how we know anything about what's happened in life, in the world, is through storytelling. So if there's any chance that people are going to remember you, it's probably because of the stories that you tell. Yeah, all of that is genius. And I love your formula. And I love how so much of it has to do with building rapport with the other person and reading the room. Yeah. And I love that part about using words, not just giving a title they're never going to understand and speaking in languages that goes right over their heads, but painting pictures with with familiar items that they can, you know, grab onto and really digest is so smart. It's so great. Thank you. So when we first met, you were telling me that you ran an agency. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to to get more into that and what you learned about managing people's egos in that role. Yeah. Yes. So I found myself as a talent manager and I ended up buying the company from the guys who ran it. And I ran it for five years and I consider it earning my master's degree in the business of show. 
I, I have a dance degree that's what originally brought me to New York. So I've always been on the stage. I've always been in entertainment. And when I started to manage, I was just learning like the other side of the equation. And, you know, first and foremost, how impersonal every decision is. It's rarely about your talent. You know, you didn't not get it because of your talent. You didn't get it because the director decided to make it a redhead family and you're a brunette and they don't have the budget for a wig and they're not going to ask you to dye your hair. Like it's, it's that simple and, you know, cut and dry. Um, but I started to speak and do workshops for actors because I wanted to give them the information that I was learning and empower them on how to market yourself, what your headshots and resumes should be looking like. How do you talk about yourself? What kind of energy are you bringing into the room? Like now that I look at the work that I'm doing now, I'm like, oh, I've been like slowly working my way towards this for a while. And that's how I kind of started to learn more about energy and mindset and what does it take to keep somebody motivated when they're in an industry that's 95% rejection, maybe even 99% rejection. How do you make sure that this person is mentally and emotionally well? How do you? How do I? There were a lot of check-ins. I was like, okay, I am definitely walking the line of therapist uh, slash babysitter in certain ways, like managing calendars, making sure people knew where they needed to be when, and then watching the trajectory of, okay, they're nervous about the audition. Then they get the call back and then they book the audition and every step they're like, okay, I want the audition. And then I want the callback and then I want the booking. And then you get the booking. And now here comes the imposter syndrome or the negative internal monologue that this is where I learned. It does not matter if you reach your goal, if your mindset is not right. Because I kept watching people get everything that they told me that they wanted to get. And then they still found a way to be miserable on set. They still found a way to be like, oh, it's just such, a, such an exhausting day, Jen. Or like my trailer wasn't what I wanted it to be. Or like the director's being a pain in the ass. All of these things. It's like, yeah, baby, this is show business. It's a business. And they don't actually care about you in the way that you want them to. We have to find the joy. You have to want this work. You have to want it really, really badly and know that it's going to be exhausting days. And it's going to be up to you to find your joy in those moments. And that's from the audition to the callback, to the booking, to being on set, to then, here's the other part, when you finally see the film or the show on TV, did your part even make it into the movie or into the final cut? Or did your part get cut? And that, that was another heartbreak that I had to walk people through a lot of the time. So it was this really interesting practice of learning the importance of being in the present moment and not being attached to, okay, I got this. Now this next thing, if I get this next thing, that's going to make me happy. That's going to make me fulfilled. That's going to confirm that I'm talented. You know, that's, that's just, it's a fool's game. So you're talking about finding the joy in even the rejection and the showing up and the having things not work out. So where, 
where can people find more joy? And I'm thinking even, you know, I know acting is its own thing, but anyone who's ever dated women is very familiar with rejection and frustration and things not working out. Oh, oh, let's not even gender that. If you're dating at all, <laughs> you're familiar with, but yes, dating women for sure can have some lessons. It's it's everything you do outside of that thing, right? Outside of dating, outside of acting, outside of your work. What are you doing to take responsibility for your own energy, for your own mental state? Are you moving your body on a regular basis? Are you eating well? Are you sleeping well? Are you like the general taking care of yourself and knowing that I'm worthy of this love. I'm worthy of this intention to myself with or without X, right? right? Whether it be a partner or a job or a promotion or an opportunity, it's just constantly coming back to yourself and saying with or without that, I'm worthy. And that shit is easier said than done. Like, don't get it twisted. I know that I'm here just saying like, oh, just, just know that you're worthy. Oh, really, Jen? Is it that easy? I mean, it's that simple, but it's not easy. And do you suggest, what are some of your favorite things? Is it meditation? Is it journaling? Is it, what are some modalities that you love in terms of helping people outside of work take responsibility for their own energy? Mm-hmm. I am a big fan of journaling. I do. Have you ever heard of the book, The Artist's Way? Tell me about it. It's, uh, is that, what's his name? Pressfield? Uh, no. Oh, no, but he's great. It's a woman. I for, I'm forgetting her name right now. But um, anyway, it, she talks about morning pages. And it's basically just a brain dump where you do not stop to think about what it is. Julia Cameron is her name. You don't stop to think about what you're writing. You are just stream of consciousness getting like almost thinking about like skimming when you skim the top of water and take the gunk off of the top. That's what you're doing with your mindset every morning. Like whatever is at the top, get it out because probably a lot of it isn't going to be helpful. And, you know, I very rarely ever go back and read what I wrote, but you write stream of consciousness for three pages and then you stop. And I call them breakfast words. So I've, you know, kind of appropriated it for my, for myself, but I do breakfast words almost every day. I started that around 2018, the same time that I got into comedy and started to focus more on writing in general because I wanted to just build that muscle a little bit. Do you write on a in physical or do you do it on a typed? Oh yeah, physical. Physical. And that is to me very important. There is there's a vein that connects from your heart down to your hand. So you are actually flowing energy from your heart onto the page when you're writing physically. So I, I personally find that to be important. When I'm writing brainstorms and stuff like that, it's in my phone. But when I'm journaling, it's pen to paper. And if you can't, if you don't have a pen and paper in front of you, it's still better to do something than nothing, right? Yes, of course, better than better than nothing. But I would even say maybe put on a voice memo and stream of consciousness talk, because again, just like connecting to your own energy, hearing our own voice say words is really powerful. And then for women, for cis women, I should say, the vocal cords is a mirror to our uterus. 
So it's actually very, like it's the same tissue in our throat that's in the vaginal canal. So there's a lot of connection, even when you're when you're having sex to use your voice, it will actually activate your pleasure center even more. So the louder you are, the more you like it. This is what I'm saying, Jordana. So listen, don't, don't be my neighbor <laughs> and complain about it. You know, you got to just lean in and start to enjoy it. <laughs> so um, as managing the agency, did you find any difference between managing female clients versus male ones? Hmm. Hmm. Did I? I think that the the women were always just more on it. When I asked for something, it was delivered immediately. The men I had to follow up a million times. Hey, did you get that email? Hey, can you send me that thing? That, I would say that's a general sense. I had some very type A men clients who were very on it as well. And then maybe the women were a little harder on themselves after an audition. I had to work a little more intentionally to make sure that their mindset was okay because they would really tear themselves apart. Yeah, it's tough. That's a lot. Mm-hmm. And I think that women do that after dates as well. You know, we come home and we're like, oh, here's all the ways that I could have done better. Meanwhile, the other person walked away loving you. Right. Or, or maybe they didn't, but either way, like, why is that going to affect how you feel about yourself? At the end of the day, they weren't for you. Okay, move on. Next. Yeah. Rejection is tough, but it is usually evidence that that was the wrong person for you to begin with. Yes. And if you can, you know, same with what I was saying with the acting, if you can kind of depersonalize it a little bit and look at it as a numbers game and just say, listen, I'm, I'm more likely to book a job the more auditions I go on. I'm more likely to get a partner the more dates I go on. So if that wasn't it, I'm closer to my yes. Every no gets you closer to your yes. Absolutely. So were you born with all this chutzpah? And if not, what were some things that you had to overcome or mature in your own personality to be good at what you do or to be good in this life, the things you're good at? Mm, I think that I was born with it. And then I learned to shove it down for a while. So when I was 13, I experienced a sexual assault that really looking back on it now, to go back to, I wouldn't consider myself a late in life lesbian, you know, if I kissed someone at 17 or 18. Well, you know, there, there was just so much that I shoved down in that moment where it was my best friend's boyfriend who did it in eighth grade. And then he went to school and told everyone, hey, Jen's a whore. You can get anything you want from her. That must have been, you were in eighth grade. That sounds so... It's unthinkable. It was really, it was really difficult. And I lost everything in a weekend. All my girlfriends turned on me, all but two, because they believed him. They believed that I chose to do that. And then I said, I don't care that you are my best friend's boyfriend. I'm going to do this. And so when I look back at like my first experience of being sexual and how much pain it caused and how getting attention, first of all, only came from men. So I guess I should just expect that. And then women 
didn't even like me, like as a friend. So of course they're not going to love me. Of course they're not going to want to date me. So I think subconsciously, I just took that off the table. I was like, this is just not going to be an option for me because they don't like me. They've made it very well known that I, they think I'm a horrible person. So let me just take that off the table. And I started to use sex as a way of power and learning to manipulate and get what I want. And it was a, a series of toxic relationships and alcohol. And I was in rehab by the time I was 14. I was in, it was in six months of rehab because I was caught with alcohol at a school event that the older girls, the seniors asked me to bring the alcohol and then they reported me. So I just kept having these experiences of like, I can't trust women. Women don't like me. So my 20s were just a series of alcohol and drug-induced toxic relationships where I would sometimes drunkenly hook up with a woman, but I, you know, it wasn't anything more than one night stands and here and there. And oftentimes a man would be present for it. I wasn't having sex for me for a long time. I wasn't even in relationships for me now that I'm like really starting to unpack how I just started to get attention from men at a very young age. And I just went with it. I was like, I guess this is what it's going to be. Well, it sounds as though everyone you were friends with abandoned you and you were treated terribly and you were shown that you couldn't trust anyone else. And mm -hmm. it seems as like, it sounds like a very horrific experience to have gone through. I'm really sorry is not the right word. That's, that sounds really messed up. Thank you. It, uh, but to your question of like, why am I so good at what I do? It's because of all of that. Like I had a lot of unpacking to do with myself and learning to read people. Like it, it very much became a survival thing for me to figure out who in this room is mad at me or who doesn't like me or who's judging me because my high school years were just that. Like I walked in on teachers talking about me. I was like, what is happening right now? <laughs> so in some ways, like my hypervigilance. It was very Machiavellian. Yeah. You weren't safe at all. No, no, I wasn't safe and I didn't feel safe in my body. But my, my relationship to dance, like dance saved my life. Dance is why I didn't completely dissociate from myself because after school, I was able to go to my dance studio where it was people from other schools. So nobody knew, quote unquote, they didn't know me the way that people at my school knew me. So I was able to be in my body and feel safe and feel like, okay, these people actually want to get to know me because they don't know about these rumors and other things that I have going on in my life. And you had Mare and her whole group, it sounds like, too, outside. Exactly. And I met Mare a couple months after these sexual assaults. So she came into my life like a guardian angel. Oh, I just, I'm forever grateful for my connection to her. Yeah, she sounds so wonderful. And uh, for as horrible as those things were, it sounds as though you did have the right help come in in the right times. I did. Yeah. I, I, my, my support system did the best that they could, you know, with what they had. No one really knew what to do with me or how to help. Even, even when I was in rehab, they didn't ask me why I started drinking. They just said, you should really stop. And I was like, yeah, I, yeah, I'm picking up on that. <laughs> I know that it's not great for me to be drinking, but also any interest in why? And they just never asked. 
pretty lame. Yeah. Um, how did you then start to trust women again or make female friends again after the betrayal that you went through? Mm-hmm. Slowly. Like in college, I, I was pretty much a loner and I was known for having like one or two friends and I would come in and out of parties and people would know of me, but no one really knew me. And I had two girlfriends that... Um, I, I became really close with, and I'm still friends with them today, that they're my 20 year friends that I met in college. And we all live in New York. We moved from Pittsburgh to New York together. And, um, they, their names are Emily and Monica, and they really helped me heal a lot in my relationship to trusting women again, and even learning, you know, what a friendship and, and a connection with a woman really is and how intimate it can be, you know, even platonically having somebody who understands you so innately and starting to unpack some of that patriarchy of every woman is a competition. You know, every woman is someone who's just here to take your man, you know, that kind of thing. And, um, I'm, I'm grateful for the friendships that I have because they've helped me unlearn a lot of that. So can we just double click a little bit further into the healing that went on, how you were able to overcome these things inside yourself and change yourself? I mean, I mm -hmm. see that you met these two wonderful friends and you mm -hmm. had Mare and all these women that did show you again how to trust, but mm -hmm. inside of yourself, what did you have to do? I had to get to a point where, where it hurt so bad that I had to do something about it. And that took me until about 28, 29 when I had brought myself to a point of realizing, all right, I got to knock it off with these drugs. I got to knock it off with these really, really toxic relationships and men that clearly don't care about me. And uh, the relationship that I ended at that time in my life, he had cheated on me. And up until that point, I was the one cheating, right? I was the one always stepping out on my partner knowing now I was probably looking for a woman the whole time. <laughs> but that was a really important experience for me to kind of get that medicine back and really feel what it felt like to be cheated on and how that shook me to my core. And that got me into therapy. And so I am forever grateful for his dumbass and everything that he did, did in our relationship because it really brought me to a point of, okay, well, I'm the common denominator here in all of these toxic relationships. So this must, must be what I think I'm worth because I keep accepting this. I keep signing up for this experience. So I have to start looking at that. Nothing's going to change if I don't change. So that, and I don't know, do you follow astrology? Not that much, but I'm somewhat. Okay. So there's something called a Saturn return and it happens from every 30 years. Yeah. Every like 28 to 32 years. So from 28 to end of your 31st year, we go through a really big change and then it happens again in your late fifties. And then it happens again. The idea being that's how long it takes Saturn to orbit, move around the sun since you were born. Yeah. So from the day you're born, about 28 to 32 years later, Saturn comes back and then it happens again when you're 60 and then again when you're 90. So it's like kind of marking these chapters of your life, apparently. Yes. And it's oftentimes where we learn really deep, hard lessons. So I remember doing a Reiki session with a woman who actually I was representing at, at the time. She was an actor and I was 28 
And she did the session. And at the end, she looked at me and she goes, oh, you're not going to, you have no idea what your life is going to look like in three years from now. She's like, everything's going to change. And I was like, no, I'm finally starting to understand myself and I'm going to keep building this talent management company. You don't know what you're talking about. And then at 32, I called her and I was like, hey, so you were right. (laughs) And, you know, if I called her now and told her everything that changed, she'd be like, "Okay, now you're starting to get what I was seeing. But anyway, the therapy really helped. But I really did have to get to a level of pain that I could no longer manage on my own. So that I I was forced to ask for help. I was forced to say, I don't like where my life is headed. I don't like what I am settling for. Help me change this. Yeah. So what were some of the biggest changes then you made and how did you figure out how to make them? I first of all, started to look for men who respected me. (laughs) Shocking. And so the relationship I had after I got into therapy was somebody that I had worked with in the entertainment industry. He was a videographer and um, I liked him a lot. I liked him as a friend. Looking back, he was just a good friend. I should have just like kept him as a friend. Um, But we dated for about a year and a half. He moved in with me. It was like a whole just thing. And uh, I ended up having to move out of my own apartment for a couple months to let him get his shit together and and get out of the apartment before I went back, back into it. And um, he but he was a healthier one. I was like, okay, I'm I'm trending in the right direction with like going towards healthier relationships. Um, While I was with him, I stopped drinking beer and liquor. Um, I continued to actually, I went completely sober at the end of our relationship because things just started to get really intense with myself. Um, so I was sober for about a year and a half and inside of that year and a half, I met the guy that I was with for seven and a half years who we ended up opening the relationship and I'm no longer with him, but, um, it, that really was a relationship that I'm always going to be grateful for because I think I was able to apply a lot of my self-healing and exploration of myself inside a container that was safe. You know, he really never wanted anything from me. He knew that I didn't want kids and I didn't want marriage and he was fine with all of that. He was fine with opening the relationship. He gave me all the freedom that I asked for. Um, and even now in our separation and me realizing like, listen, I'm, I'm just meant to be with women. I, I don't even know how we got here. Like my bad, I didn't mean to waste your time. And he's like, this was not a waste of time. You know, we, we both learned a lot and we both grew a lot because of each other. And, um, at one point in our relationship, I started to drink wine and champagne again. I was like, all right, let me bring this back into it. And then that, that didn't go well. I'm, I'm, I'm back with no alcohol in my life at all. Cause my life is just better without it. And I, I'm pretty sure that if I didn't get sober, it would have taken me a lot longer to realize that I'm queer. You know, there was, there was just a lot of self numbing that I started doing when I was 13. I mean, I started drinking before school almost every day in eighth grade. And I kind of kept it going all the way through my early 30s. So it's really no surprise to me that it's taken me as long as it's taken me to get to know myself in this way because I wasn't feeling myself. 
So everything we talked about earlier with like checking in with yourself, it's so much deeper than just, am I excited? Am I nervous? It's like, no, who am I in this world? How am I moving? Is it authentic? Or am I just playing a role that people wanted me to play and I'm a people pleaser. So I'm going to just play that role. And that's what I was doing for like the first three and a half decades of my life. I was just figuring out the role that the world wanted from me and I was going to play it to the best of my ability. And being in the entertainment industry only exacerbates that. Correct. And the entertainment industry is still not all that excited about gay people, especially women, especially beautiful women. They they want you to be the desire of men because that sells. Yeah, I am grateful for how much representation there is at this at this point, but mm-hmm. I see what you mean. Yeah, there's still there's still not a lot. You know, the the shows are out for maybe one or two seasons. They're they're very rarely getting picked up and that kind of thing. So. And so for anyone who is a people pleaser, walking around, focus more on figuring out the role other people want to play for them as opposed to, you know, what they're genuinely feeling, what are some steps people can take? You know, people pleasing is a big topic for you. Oh, man. Therapy, get into therapy, find a modality that works for you. I'm a big fan of internal family systems. That's the work that I did with the therapist that changed really changed my perception of myself because they do something called parts work. And so you start to learn all the different parts of you and learning how to integrate all the different parts of you and how the shame and the anger and like every part of you is valuable. It's all here serving you, trying to keep you safe. And man, learning, I, I think really what it comes down to when you stop people pleasing there's the fear of, but what if they leave me, right? What if, what if all these people stop talking to me? Yeah. What if, what if your entire life changed? Can you have your back? So it's like really doing the work of building the trust with yourself of knowing if these people do not like me for who I actually am, I'm so much better off finding that out now. Because I like me for who I am. Now I can say that, honestly. I like me for who I am. And I'm still learning myself every day. One of my jokes is I look at myself in the mirror and say, now what are you telling me? Like, I I, I feel like I spend all day with you and I still don't know who you are, right? Like there's always something to learn about ourselves. But when we're scared that, If I'm honest, if they see this about me, if they know this about me, they're going to leave me. You have to be able to stand in that fear. Okay, so what if they leave me? What, am I going to die? Is my world going to end? No, it's not. The world as you know it might change completely. My world definitely looks different than it used to, but it's so much better. Yeah, because if you're with someone who genuinely does not like you for who you are, then ew, get away from that person. No kidding. Your friends, your job, all of it. Like if you can't show up as who you are, you're not living your life. You're living outside of yourself. 
And it's a really painful, sad place to be. And a lot of people are there subconsciously. We don't even realize it because we're not checking in with ourselves. We're not having any kind of practice of meditation or journaling. We, we are not taught to do that. And society prefers to keep us busy, by the way. It's a problem when society starts to check in with themselves and live life authentically. The, the patriarchy doesn't love it. Yeah. I had a very profound experience of that when I was 19 going on 20. And I had my first broken heart. I fell in love with this girl who my best friend didn't love me back. And I, I found myself almost like, not only did I know she she didn't love me back, but I found that in a lot of ways I was like mimicking her or acting like her, just like the annoying little 19 year old I was at the time. And I was thinking about this, watching myself, like who was I being? I was just being this annoying person that was copying someone else. And I realized I didn't even know who I was. Mm-hmm. And I realized I hadn't really been authentic that whole time. And maybe it was because of a fear of other people not liking me. But I realized if I just started being authentic, maybe I would lose all those people. Maybe they wouldn't genuinely like me for who I, who I am. But at some point, other people would show up. And if I was constantly acting like myself, then in that projected future, whoever was around me would then be there because they were choosing to be around the person I genuinely am. Yes. And it was sort of a permission to start not, you know, it was a, it was permission to, to start acting more authentically without fear. A hundred percent. Another reframe of people pleasing that really helped me was seeing it as manipulation. You're manipulating people into thinking that you're someone that you're not. So you're not even giving them a chance to know you. You're just preemptively giving them this thing that you think they want, trying to be impressive. And that's manipulative. You're not letting people in. So when I started to see it that way, it's a, it's a, it's a phrase that sounds nice, right? People pleasing. Oh, what's wrong with, pe with pleasing people? No, no, you're manipulating them into thinking that you're someone that you're not. I love that. What else do you know about manipulation? <laughs> What a fun question. I know a lot about manipulation because I know energy. I know how to read a room. I know how to move somebody's energy. You know, when I, when I start on stage, sometimes the person before me didn't do great and, and they left the room kind of dead. And now I have to pick it up again and make sure that we get them to a place where they even want to laugh. There's manipulation in that for sure, you know, but manipulating and moving energy uh, to shift the space is, is, you know, different than the other connotation of manipulating people into doing something they don't realize they're doing, which is liking someone that doesn't actually exist because you're faking everything. <laughs> I love it. Keep going though. Keep more on manipulation. Cause I think it's a word that scares people, yeah. but we all do it. And so when we're doing it, we're mostly doing it in our shadow because if we think it's a bad, nasty word, we're not seeing ourselves for it. And in some ways, like it can be real manipulation can be quite useful and powerful, as you say, mm -hmm. if it's if it's what's required in that moment to take a, a room full of people with low energy and mm -hmm. lift the energy so that people are having more fun. Yeah. So this is the parts work that I was just talking about. We all have a shadow side. We all have that manipulator in us. And where it becomes problematic is when you don't have an awareness of it.
And then it can start driving the conversation or driving your actions from the shadow. And you don't realize that you are being a manipulator. You don't realize that your people pleasing is actually manipulation. You don't realize that it's bringing you from a place of insecurity. And and so you're actually manipulating yourself in, in, in those scenarios. But, you know, let's say you're manipulating... Um, a conversation, if you're at the airport and you're talking to someone behind the desk and you know that they can help you, right? If you start to butter somebody up, you start complimenting them, you start getting them on your side, baby, that's manipulation. <laughs> but it's not necessarily a bad thing. You're just doing what you need to do to try and help yourself out in that moment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so in terms of getting more in touch with our shadows and these other parts of ourselves, if we're, if for anyone who like, for example, couldn't afford a therapist and just wanted to get started, you talked about shame, you talked about anger, you talked about insecurity. Would you just journal on those parts of yourself? Like, what am I ashamed of? What am I insecure about? What am I, what makes me angry and just write long lists of it or something or. Okay. So this is where I feel it's very important to remind everybody. I am not a licensed therapist, <laughs> but of course. Um, see if you can find the voice of your anger, of your shame, of your fear and write from them. So don't say, why, why am I angry? Just say, okay, I'm giving anger the mic talk. What are you angry about? And then why are you here? And more often than not, at least for me, the anger shows up because it's protecting the sadness. It's protecting the grief. It's protecting the part of myself that feels so afraid of being seen, so unsafe, so invalidated that it's like, whoa, 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 no one crosses this barrier. You know, I will sooner tell you to, can I swear on this podcast? Okay. I, I will sooner tell you to go fuck yourself than watch me cry right? I'm not going to let you do that. Even ourselves, we don't want to watch ourselves cry. So we'll just get pissed. And so learning why these parts come forward and when has been game changing with even noticing myself inside of conflict, inside of a conversation that's really difficult. When I see my or, and feel my anger or my shame start to trigger I know, ooh, I'm protecting myself. I'm getting really protective. So maybe we take a beat, right? Maybe I go away for a minute. Maybe I go for a walk and recenter myself because I'm starting to take responsibility for the parts of me that come forward when. And it's not your fault that I'm angry. You may have triggered something in me to get that anger ratcheted up, but it's actually my responsibility to kind of go away and figure out why is this present and what can I do? So anyway, speaking from those voices can really help you start to hear and you'll start talking like that voice, right? When I'm angry, I sound different. The tone of my voice actually changes. It's like, ooh, who's that? And do you name it? Do you name her or? I do. I do name them. Yeah. And they have different shapes. They're not always solid. They're not always showing up. Like my anger it shows up in a form. It doesn't show up as me. What's their name? Oh, I'm not sharing that. Okay, no problem at all. Yeah, no, not sharing that. But um, they, oh, man, I'm I'm so intimate with the different parts of myself now. And I love them a lot, yeah. That's beautiful. 
So it's like you're fine. You're letting anger speak. You're letting fear speak. You're letting shame speak. And you want to know mm-hmm. wh- what do you have to say? Why are you here? What are you protecting me from? What do you want? Mm-hmm. And what and what are you afraid of is another good question. And the more and is that something you do written? Yes, writing. This is another thing that you can journal and just and you can have a conversation. You can let the fear talk and then you talk back. If you want to, if you feel called to reassure this part of yourself, like I hear you or, wow, I'm so glad that you told me that. Wow, I didn't realize this is what you needed because it's at the end of the day, it's a practice of reparenting ourselves, giving ourselves all the things that we didn't get that we needed as a child because our parents do the absolute best that they can, but they're not giving us everything that we need. Even the best of the best parents just will never hit every mark that your child needs. And eventually that's our job. I love all of it. So what are some things you just wish every woman could know for herself? Mm. Man, women are magic. We are the portal to the other side. We create life. Even if you're not birthing a human, which I will not be doing in this life, I birth a lot of things into this world. The Spanish word for uterus translates to universe. And I just love knowing that and i'm i'm speaking to cis women when i when i say that portion of it but you know women in general the um it doesn't matter what parts you were born with there is a magic that women have that nothing else on this earth has and i'm talking about any animals that are female as well the human woman right women are only human that we don't say you have a woman cat, right? It's a female cat. Women are very specific to the human experience and women are magic. And I would just say, slow down. If you're listening to me and you're saying, I don't feel magical, I'm not magic, slow down and start to get curious about what if I am magic? What would that look like through me? What would that feel like through me? Because that's the other magical part is it's different in all of us. It's a different expression. And man, when we can get to that, when we can get to our own magical expression, we can and we will and we do change the world. It's amazing. Thank you so much for all of this advice. Is there any other words of wisdom you just wish everyone could know that we, I want to be mindful of your time, but before we. Words of wisdom. Okay, I don't I don't even know why this is present, but what I heard when you said that is I love you. I just if if you if you can hear me and receive that from somebody that you don't even know, this just this detached voice saying to you, I love you. Um, maybe you can receive that. That's beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you, Jordana. Where can women go to find more of your work and see what you're doing and connect further? I'm at Jen Letterer across the board on all the social medias and jenletterer.com is my website. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for sharing these brilliant words of wisdom. It was so much fun to talk to you. And I had such a, it was such a great conversation. Thank you. Me too. Time flew. Wow. This was awesome. Thank you. You're awesome. Thanks, Jen. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. If you like this episode, please subscribe, share it with a friend, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
And if you want lesbian dating advice from me more often, follow me on Instagram at jordana.michelle. Also, don't forget that womenwantingwomen.com is packed with free resources that can help you build your confidence and have more success with dating. While you're there, you can book a one-on-one coaching session with me to get my personal support in finding the love you long for. Until next time, keep remembering that hot lesbians are everywhere, that love is real, and that the woman of your dreams is on her way into your life in perfect timing. And I'll catch you next time on Women Wanting Women.